0: This is part of a sermon series called Realizing the Promises of God. Realizing the Promises of God. It's a walk through the book of Joshua. And uh, as you know, the different elders are working through different books of the Bible pastor steve is working through first timothy uh daniel is working through second peter steve da is working through nehemiah i chose joshua i chose joshua because it's a narrative it's a there's no parables no visions uh it's just uh, stories of god doing amazing things through ordinary people and i said i can i think i can do that um so, uh, But the title of this particular sermon is Crossing the Jordan, and we're going to look at a fairly big piece of text, uh, two chapters, Joshua 3 and Joshua 4. Uh, turn with me on, the, on to the next slide, Nick. We'll take a look at our timeline here. Um, I want to draw your attention to, uh, I think we had a slide with the timeline. Did we have that slide? Maybe. Yeah, this one, okay. So I wanna focus your attention to the red arrow. Uh, so um, I, there's, you can see the sojourn in Egypt, the slavery, the 350 to 400 years that Israel is uh, enslaved in Egypt. Uh, Jacob takes them in at the end of Genesis. Uh, you see Jacob taking his family of 70 or so into Egypt during the famine. And then there's this period of slavery and they explode to a couple of hundred thousand. Then comes the Deliverer. Moses leads them out of Egypt. There's an exodus. And, uh, and then at the fifth book of the Bible, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses dies. Uh, and then the... Sorry for the bummer. <laughs> and uh, so uh, this is where the book of Joshua starts. It's, uh, so Joshua is the sixth book in your Bible. And at this time, uh, they're living east of the Jordan. Uh, there was a young aide to Moses. Uh, and his name was... Joshua, right? <laughs> so he was an Israelite. He was born under slavery. He was born in Egypt. He experienced the 10 plagues, um, and he watched in awe as God uh, parted the Red Sea, and, uh, and the entire nation uh, escaped the Egyptian army, and then as the water actually closed in, then destroyed the Egyptian army. He followed Moses into the desert, um, and then it wasn't long after that that God called Joshua to lead a makeshift Israelite army, and they had a few skirmishes, uh, and in uh, Exodus 14, they defeat the Amalekites under Joshua's leadership. So very early on, he establishes himself as a military leader. Um, not long after that, Moses actually selects him as uh, one of the 12 um, to spy out the promised land, and I'm rewinding history a little bit. Moses is still alive. <laughs> so they go and check out the promised land, you'll remember, and uh, you remember that Twelve spies went over and had checked out the promised land, and two came back, and only two were faithful. It was Joshua, and it was Caleb. But they failed to persuade the nation to cross the Jordan and take that promise at that time. Uh, God was not pleased at what he called contempt toward him, and he threatened to destroy the entire nation of Israel in the desert at that time. Moses pleads with God, and God showed mercy. And, um, but Israel would have to suffer. For every day that the spies had checked out the promised land, 40 days, for every day they would have to spend one year in the desert, and they did that. And I think we have a map that maybe we can show as well, Nick. So uh, they are east of the Jordan. So that would be on your right-hand side. And I want to draw your attention to the Sea of Galilee in the north this large river which flows south, which is the Jordan River, and it flows into the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea. And um, they're going to cross. This is the river that they're about to cross. So, but they have to wait the 40 years in the desert until Moses finally dies and the book of Deuteronomy ends and the book of Joshua starts. So uh, this is my third sermon in this series. In the first chapter, we see we saw how God... Um, was faithful to the promise. And in verse two of chapter one of Joshua, we're not gonna show it on the screen here, but you can, if you, hopefully you have your Bibles open to Joshua. Moses, in verse two, it says, Moses, my servant, is now dead. This is, this is God talking to Joshua. He said, now then, you and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. And verse five says, no one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. So these words must have been an encouragement to Joshua. Um, There's no standing against those who have God on their side. God promises them clear and certain success and he tells them to be strong and courageous. That was chapter one. So they're preparing to cross the Jordan. Then in chapter two of the book of Joshua, uh, we see that Joshua sends a couple of spies over just to gather a little bit of reconnaissance of what is to come. And they go into the mighty Canaanite fortress of Jericho and they check it out. Um, This is an absolutely sinful, broken, pagan culture. Um, And God is about to use Israel to utterly destroy um, the Canaanites. In future sermons, we'll actually see the fall of Jericho. But in chapter 2 in particular, we see Joshua send these two spies over. Um, They go into the house of Rahab, the temple prostitute. They manage to evade capture from the king's soldiers and promise Rahab uh, to preserve her family. We saw that Rahab's situation had commonalities to our own situation today. It's an historical event that reveals God's willingness to use the less than perfect and the outcast. And perhaps you feel a little less than perfect this week. And this is an encouraging story about how God uses someone who had a tainted history, somebody who had uh, suffered disgrace, someone who was less than perfect perhaps in her own eyes and the eyes of others. And he uses her. And I think if we had a prostitute in our own family tree, we might work hard to conceal that kind of sordid history in your family ge- genealogy, but not Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1, Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually records out the genealogy of Jesus, and he doesn't leave out Rahab, uh, and she's listed there. Uh, without her, we would, not have, um, we would not have the full genealogy. So let's pick up the story, beginning in chapter 3. Now you can follow along in your Bibles. This is a great time to open your Bible. It's a large text, or you can follow along on the screen. Beginning in chapter 1 of Joshua, chapter 3. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan. And he and all the people of Israel um, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you of about 2,000 cubits. That's about half a mile. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not come this way before. Well, let's stop here for a moment. Uh, Right away, we see that the Ark of the Covenant is going to feature prominently in this story, in Joshua chapter 3 and Joshua chapter 4. What is the Ark of the Covenant? We don't talk about it very much. Uh, Why is it important? Why was it important? And to put it simply, at that time, it was a symbol of God's uh, protection and God's presence in the midst of Israel. And I've even got a teaching aid with me here this morning. So this comes from Pastor Steve's office. It's probably a uh, a 1 to 10 scale model of the real Ark of the Covenant, um, which is described in Exodus chapter 25 and Exodus chapter 37. It's essentially a gold-covered wooden box, except for the lid. The lid is completely cast of one piece. It comes off. uh, They referred to it as the atonement cover. There's two cherubs on top, and... The, 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 God was very specific to, uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai about the way he wanted this built. The, the position of the cherubs, the orientation of the cherubs, their posture and their wings was all very specific and it was all cast in one solid piece of gold. I'll put that down here so the kids can take a closer look at it. There you go. So what was unique about the ark was the fact that it was, uh, I want you to remember three P's. It represented God's presence, his power, uh, and his promises. So uh, it pointed to God, but God was also literally enthroned in the ark. So God, yes, is in heaven, but without limitation on his sovereignty is also enthroned in the ark. It was literally the presence of the living God in the nation of Israel. It was also built to travel, and as you can see, it has these wooden poles on the sides that Levitical priests would use to carry it. It was sacred. It was powerful. On one occasion, it was actually captured by the Philistines, believe it or not. And, um, you can read about it in 1 Samuel 4, chapters 4 to 7. Israel mourned it deeply, um, but they lost it in a particular battle, and the Philistines took it. Uh, but was, they only kept it for about seven months, actually, and it moved seven times from seven cities around uh uh, from philistine city to philistine city and everywhere it went the people were panic stricken and afflicted with tumors and uh, they finally decided that's enough they packed it on a couple of ox and they sent it back towards the the border with israel they didn't accompany it they put it on on some ox uh, with some guilt offering and they ship they sent those ox toward israel and wouldn't you believe The ox didn't turn to the left, and they didn't turn to the right. They didn't stop and eat some grass. They walked straight for the border, and Israel got the Ark of the Covenant back. Later on, it gets reunited to the tent of meeting by King David. Much later, into Solomon's temple by King Solomon. And much, much later, King Josiah, fearing invasion by the Babylonians, says to the temple priests in 2 Chronicles 35, he asked the priests um, to hide it in the temple which is interesting because it's already in the temple. But uh, in this particular case, the Hebrew word bayith can also be translated secret hiding place. So King Josiah asks the priests to essentially hide the Ark, which they do. And after this, the Old Testament gets very quiet about what happens to the Ark and over the last decades and centuries, archaeologists have spent countless time and money looking for the Ark of the Covenant. I tried typing it in the internet, by the way. I wouldn't recommend you do that. Uh, There's rampant speculation. Some believe it was carried off to Ethiopia, and it's literally in a church guarded at this time in Ethiopia. Others believe that it was carried off to South Africa. Um, Ron Wyatt believes he found it in Zedekiah's cave underneath Jerusalem, and he, he met four angels who were guarding it, and 16 men have died trying to pull it out. But if you don't believe any of that, perhaps you believe the 1981 movie by Steven Spielberg. Indiana Jones found the Ark of the Covenant in Cairo in 1936 in Raiders of the Lost Ark. I watched the movie as preparation for the sermon, believe it or not. <laughs> Made my whole family watch the movie. And uh, if you believe that particular movie, the Ark was found, it was recovered, and it was brought back to the U.S., and it's now safe in Area 51 in a, in a crate. What, <laughs> what I can tell you is that the Apostle John does see the Ark. In Revelation 11, he sees the temple of God in heaven opened, and he sees the ark. This is after the seventh trumpet and the return of Christ. But please hear me when I say this. Don't worry about where the ark is. Um, If God wanted us to see it visibly here on earth right now in a museum somewhere, he would. But um, it's not important. And later on, in a few moments, I'll, I'll explain why it's not important. But for Joshua and the people of Israel, at that moment in history, it was God's protection, his presence, and his promise. It was, it was God living among them. And according to Hebrews 9, in the New Testament, Hebrews 9 tells us what's in it. Children, do you know what's, what was kept in the ark? <laughs> My own daughter's lifted her hand. Yes, sweetheart, what do you think was lift in the ark? One of them was Aaron's rod. That's right. So Aaron's rod that had budded, the stone tablets, and a golden jar of manna that's what israel kept in ark. and actually if you look in there after the sermon you can look in there you'll actually see all that in there but don't lose any of the pieces <laughs> so um let's get back to the text let's pick up in verse five uh, it says then joshua and the people consecrate themselves And this must have been a huge encouragement to Joshua. Descriptions I've read about the local geography say that the Jordan River is kind of like the Niagara River. It's pretty wide. It's pretty deep. It's fast moving. Um, There were no bridges. There were no boats. Joshua didn't quite know how he was going to pass over. And don't forget, in the back of his mind, he knew that crossing the river meant a military conquest. Yes, there were promises of vineyards and homes and food and, and, and cisterns already dug, but people were using that stuff. There was going to be a military conquest, and by physical stature, the Canaanites were bigger, uh, bigger and stronger. They were powerful warriors. They were tyrants, and they were oppressors. Joshua knew what this meant. He knew that crossing the river and going into the promised land meant a military conquest, and he needed to be brave, and he needed to be courageous. And it's beautiful to see God speak to him like that in verse seven. And in verse eight, it says, as, and as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen. He calls them to listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will He will, without fail, drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above, remember from from the Sea of Galilee flowing down to uh, the, the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, will stand up in one heap. Well, there it is. God's made a declaration. He's going to cut off the water from flowing. And there's going to be a major display of God's power. Notice in verse 11, it says, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you. This is actually better translated, the ark of the covenant, the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you, meaning the Lord of all the earth is with you and is passing uh, on before you. It's not just a gold covered box containing the 10 commandments. It's actually the Lord himself with them. He's visibly present. Your Bible often reveals a beautiful concept. It's more better developed in the New Testament, but it often says, if God can do this, how much more will he do that? If God can do this, how much more will he do that? And I think in this case, we see the people of Israel being shown that if God can dam up a river, if he can dam up a river, he will be faithful to deliver them from their enemies when they, when they cross over. How's he going to do it? How's he going to, he going to shut the water Off, how's he going to make the water stand up as a scientist? This intrigues me, I'm sure it it intrigues you too. Someday, this is on my list of questions to ask Jesus, but I don't want you to spend a lot of time on it. Don't worry about it, trying to think of how God might have done this. Yes, he could have just told the water to stand, he's sovereign enough, he can just tell the water to stand. But if you need some explanation, some earthly explanation, you might say, Well, maybe it was an earthquake, what could he have done? Well, okay turns out there is a fault underneath the river earthquakes do occur in that area and in three recorded events 1267 1906 and 1927 there were earthquakes in that valley the riverbanks collapsed and it shut off the river from 10 to 21 hours so it could have been god just telling the water to stand it could have been an earthquake that made the river stop but what i want you to know However you want to think about it or log it in your brain, it was divine. From the moment, if it was an earthquake, God would have timed it perfectly for when the priests put their feet in the water. That's a miracle. And so God is displaying his power. It was a powerful display of God's power. And in verse 14, it said, So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the waters, now the waters were overflowing all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Sarathan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely shut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho, You can remember the map that I showed you earlier. And now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan and all the people, as all Israel, was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. We're talking a couple of hundred thousand people. I'd like to propose that the river was not slow or a slow-moving creek. There's a little factoid inserted there that says the river was at flood stage. Here's a question for the children, you don't have to raise your hands. (laughs) What makes a river fast and what makes a river slow? And I can think of two answers quickly. One is volume, you need a lot of water, and you need a drop in elevation. If you flow water downhill at a steep elevation, you're gonna get a a fair bit of a scary river. And that's exactly what God had provided. Um, So it's interesting, why does God choose the very time and the very place when the river is the most scariest? Uh, it says it was at the time of harvest. It was flood stage. And this at this particular point in the river, the elevation is drops about 40 feet per mile, and that's enough to make the water pretty scary. I think this is exactly how our God works. He wants to show us, and maybe he's done this with you this week, our utter dependence on him, our utter helplessness, so that he can show his power and get us to the other side. And that's exactly what he did for Israel. They needed to see this, and they needed to learn this. So I think you get the picture. We have several hundred thousand Jews make their way down the steep slope toward the river. The priests, who must have been afraid, step out into the Jordan. I suspect they might have been a little bit afraid, you know. Um, I'm not sure how many men it takes to carry the ark, but uh, it was at least four, possibly six or more. And... uh, you know, can you imagine 200,000 people watching you as you step out into the water? <laughs> you're thinking, Joshua told me the water will stop. Joshua told me the water will stop. Joshua told me the water will stop. And you're probably thinking, what if it doesn't happen? Is it, is it on me? <laughs> sort of thing. But the priests do it, and the water stops. And we're going to have to read on into chapter four to see what happens. Um, when all the na- nation had finished crossing over the Jordan, The Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones. From here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priests' feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and each of you take up a stone upon your shoulder. So not a small stone, something fairly big, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask you in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever, a memorial forever. And the, and the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. And they took up the 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and they laid them down. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And there they, they are there to this day. So God gives Joshua command. He is faithful and he follows the command. 12 men, one from each tribe, picks up stones from the riverbed and carries them out of the river. And the picture of obedience is, is strong here. And if you're confused a little bit by the text, maybe you picked it up, uh, uh, there's some translational differences here. In verse 9 says that Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the midst of the Jordan. But later in verse 20, you'll see that he he built the memorial on dry ground in, Gal- in Gilgal. So how could he build a memorial in the Jordan and also out of the Jordan? And some scholars like Francis Schaeffer have speculated that there's actually two different memorials, one in the river, which is still there, covered with water, and one on dry ground. But more recently, evangelical scholars believe the text is better translated simply from the midst, and that there's just the one memorial. Um, Just an interesting fact, I guess. Verse 10, for the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord had commanded. Joshua tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste it says they passed over in haste i think that's interesting because there was no egyptian army chasing them this time there was no reason to be in a rush but they it says they passed over in haste they didn't stop they didn't linger they didn't take pictures and post it on social media it says the people passed over in haste you could just imagine you know i don't know what's happening but just keep going (laughs) and they all passed over as quickly as they could And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel. As Moses had told them, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. Now, why are these three tribes mentioned? Why are these three tribes mentioned, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh? and it's recorded in Numbers 32, they had actually struck a deal with Moses. It turns out these three tribes were really good at raising cattle, and they had a lot of cattle, and they knew the promise was coming. They knew that someday they would cross the Jordan, but things were going really good on the east side of the Jordan. So they approached Moses and said, you know, can we just take our rest now, and we'll stay on this side. Moses talks to God, God Uh, talks to Moses, and Moses tells the the men from these three tribes, yes, I'll give you your rest now, but here's the deal. When we do cross the Jordan, your wives and your children and your livestock can stay on the eastern side of the Jordan, but all the fighting men, you're going to cross with us. And not only that, you're going to go first, and you're going to be armed to go into battle. And they agreed to it. And uh, it was a promise to Moses, and Joshua makes sure that uh, they honor it. Verse 14, Verse 14, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in all the sight of Israel and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come out of the Jordan. They're still in the Jordan by the way. The poor priests had to stand holding the ark in the middle of the Jordan while 200,000 or so passed through. It probably got heavy. Um, But finally the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up out of the midst of the river and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground and the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed its banks as before. The people came out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, and that you may fear the Lord, your God, forever. So Joshua takes the 12 stones and he builds a memorial, a place where fathers and mothers can take their children in years to come and teach them what had happened, what God did, that he was faithful to his promise. And this was a promise that dated all the way back to Abraham. Here's the promise. Uh, Back in Deuteronomy 6, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to you a land large and flourishing, cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig, and vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. That was the promise from Deuteronomy. He's giving them free cities, already built, houses full of good food and things, cisterns and vineyards and already planted. And when you've been living in the desert for 40 years, that's got to sound pretty good, I'm sure they were filled with fear. I'm sure they were filled with excitement. But all of that, despite the fear and excitement, God knew they would need a memorial. As humans, we, as fallen individuals, we tend to need memorials. We have memory lapses, and, and Israel had a history of memory lapses, and God knew that they would need a memorial. We still need memorials today. Walk around St. John's. We have full of, we're full of memorials. We found a new one yesterday right across from uh, Churchill Square, a memorial to Winston Churchill. This is a rhetorical question. What do you think is the most obvious memorial in St. John's? I think it's Memorial University. It's in the name. It was opened in 1925 to be a living, lasting memorial to those who lost their lives in the First and Second World Wars. It's a living, lasting memorial. Joshua created a memorial at Gilgal to remember God's faithfulness. And did God keep his promise? You bet he did. He was faithful to his promise. We serve a loving God, a living God, who is faithful to his promises. Let me close with two devotional thoughts. I know we're long on time. Number one, don't focus on the ark. Even though we have a little model here, don't focus on the ark. It was important to the Jewish nation at that time. In redemptive history, it was God's uh, protecting presence among them at that time. Foreign enemies even stole it. And um, we don't know where it is today for sure. I don't want you to worry about it. Don't spend a lot of time on it. Uh, Maybe there'll be another Indiana Jones movie in the future. We never know. But here's my advice. Don't worry about the Ark. Really. Don't worry about the Ark. Which brings me to my second and final point. And you know this. We have... A new covenant, and I didn't plan this, but uh, Pastor Steve read earlier from Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, we're reading through Hebrews as part of our morning worship, and um, uh, and I have it here to share with you. It was the new covenant foretold in Jeremiah. That's where the Old Testament text came from in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, "Behold, the days are coming," declares the Lord, "When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah." And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall already know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is God's pledge to forgive our sins, to put his law within us and to write it on our hearts, to be our God and to make us his people. This is the gospel message This is the good news that the Son of Man died. That he died once for all. We don't need to sprinkle blood on the corners of a piece of golden furniture in a tabernacle or in a temple to atone for our sins anymore. Jesus' blood has been spilled once for all. We don't need the old covenant because we have the new covenant and his his laws are written on our heart. So... Please remember that here this morning. It's why we're here, to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus, that he died once for all. In one decisive act, let us close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we don't need an ark anymore. We don't need Levitical priests to atone for our sins. The veil has been torn. We have the, the privilege of entering into the most holy place and come into direct communion with the living God. Oh, Lord, what a privilege that we have this new covenant. Our guilt has been atoned for. it solves the guilt problem. In one decisive act, once for all, you shed your blood as the Lamb of God. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Amen.